The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. Good morning, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people, and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S.-occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, and for Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warned you about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys could join us this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. SonsOfLibertyRadio.com and SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you go to SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, you can scroll down right there on the right, and you can see the video portion of our broadcast. That's right. You can see the face that's made for radio right there. And you can also check out that live video feed on my Twitter account, FPPTim. Um, it's tied to my Periscope account, which we're also broadcasting to, which is Setting Brush Fires. Our Facebook page is Bradley Dean SOL. Our YouTube channel is B Dean Sons of Liberty. Before it's news.com, we're there every weekday morning at 6 a.m., Saturdays at 8 a.m. Eastern Time, and then uh, Bradley comes on at 3 p.m. Monday through Saturday at uh, at 3 p.m. on beforeitsnews.com as well. We're also on thelive.tv at the Sons of Liberty, and then you can also catch us on Spreely, Gab, MeWe, Minds, and USA.life, and um, we're not going to take calls today, uh, but uh, we do have a very special guest on the line with me. Uh, we've had him on before, Dr. Edwin Vieira. He is um, a constitutional attorney and scholar, and we decided to have him on because he had such an impactful um, uh, article put out the other day called The President's Authority and Duty to Suppress Insurrections, and he was kind enough to let us carry it at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. It was first over at NewsWithViews.com, and just want to welcome to the show Dr. Vieira. It's my pleasure to be with you. Yeah, now this is a pretty big deal because what we've seen going, what we're seeing going around the country, we we saw some peaceful protest. Even the the um, uh, the the police officers, the police chief or the sheriff, one was saying that went after this George Floyd incident went on. We he said the the protests that came were peaceful. There were people who were upset that that something had been had been done, and they wanted some justice in the matter. And then he says by nightfall. Evidently, the paid provocateurs had gotten in. There was rioting. There was looting. There was things that weren't protests. They were crimes that were committed. And then this began to pop up all over the country. And there is a way of dealing with it locally if the people would deal with it locally, but they haven't been. And um, so there have been calls for the president to step in uh, and to put down insurrections, as the Constitution says, that the militia is to be used for. 
And so I wanted to bring you on to speak to this issue. Tell us a little bit about, uh, you say this is pretty obvious, and I, I think it is, uh, but there's a lot of people who haven't been taught these things. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Tell me, tell me a little bit about uh, what brought you to write this, and then the, lay that out about the, the, the power and the authority and the duty that the president has to suppress insurrections. Well, the background of mine is really very simple. Uh, I've been studying the um, constitutional basis of the militia of the several states, as the term constitution uses, in reference to both the constitutional provisions of the original constitution and the Second Amendment, and how all of that applies in various ways today. Uh, Usually, its application is something that legislatures have not taken up. They ought to be taking it up, but they haven't done it. And I've read a great deal of history on this subject and written quite extensively on it. So uh, I suppose I could say I know it backwards and forwards, although in this particular case, there isn't really a tremendous amount that one has to study. In fact, most of it is found in one chapter of Title X of the United States Code, which is a collection of uh, various statutes under particular headings that Congress has created. And Chapter 13 relates to insurrections. That's its title. Now, it turns out, if you go and look at all the provisions in Chapter 13, you'll discover that well, some of them relate to insurrections, some of them don't. Uh, they come from different statutes passed at different times, which have been, been amended in one way or another, usually, and then all codified, put together in this one chapter, because somebody in Congress or the uh, people in the back room, the people who revise structures of the United States Code, thought that they were all relevant to each other. So it's all there. It's not very hard to find. It's online. You go up to the United States Code and look up Title 10, and then you start with Section 251, and it takes you through all of the provisions that are really relevant to what we're talking about from 251 to Section 251-255. Now, all this goes back, of course, because we're talking about the president, to the president's constitutional duties, rights, powers, what have you, the number of legal terms that apply. And one starts off with, of course, the oath of office he takes to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And in fact, he has to take that oath or affirmation upon entering the office. That's a condition to enter the office. He may have been elected, but before he actually becomes the President of the United States in the office constitutional position, he has to take that oath. And that then encompasses everything else that is in the Constitution or the statutes or perhaps judicial decisions under some circumstances that would apply to him in his official capacity. So if we look at the very beginning of Article 2 of the Constitution, it talks about all executive power being vested in the President. So he has now the executive power, and the executive power essentially means the power to execute the laws. Congress enacts the laws, the president executes the laws, and under some circumstances the courts interpret the laws. That's the fundamental breakdown. Now, that executive power is not left to chance, as it were, in Article 2, because if you look at Article 2, Section 3, it says that the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. So it's uh, I shall say emphasized, and, and, and it's the emphasis of those two points. It's his executive power, and then it's the obligation he has to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, that he now has this responsibility to execute the laws faithfully. Now, what laws would we be talking about? 
Well, there would be laws that would relate to insurrection. Let's use insurrection in a very broad terminology because it could include riots, it could include uh, seditious conspiracy. I mean, you can think of a lot of things that might be a part of insurrection. Now, if you look at the constitutional powers of Congress to deal with insurrection, one leaps off the page at you. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15, power of Congress to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union and suppress insurrections. Also talks about repelling invasions, but we can leave that aside. Execute the laws of the Union and suppress insurrections. So that would lead you to the conclusion that perhaps uh, there would be provisions in the laws passed by Congress that would relate to the use of the militia for those two purposes. And that would then bring you back to, or forward actually in the Constitution, to the President's status as Commander-in-Chief, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1. He's Commander-in-Chief of the Militia of the Several States when called into the actual service of the United States. So this ties it all together in terms of constitutional structure, that the President has this obligation to execute laws faithfully, to, see, to take care of them faithfully executed. And Congress has the power to enact laws to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws and suppress insurrections in particular. And the militia are subject to the control of the president as their commander-in-chief when they have been called forth by Congress for those purposes. So now all we need to do to get essentially to the final step in the analysis is to find a statute that ties all of those things together because, of course, the Constitution doesn't specify when and how those powers are to be exercised. And that brings you to this Chapter 13 of Title 10, the one that's entitled Insurrection. And there are a number of provisions. Uh, and this is a problem because people have been talking, at least I've seen this on the Internet over and over again, people talking about something called the Insurrection Act, the Insurrection Act. Well, there really is no the Insurrection Act. There are a series of different statutes, different sections in Chapter 13 that deal in one way or another with insurrection or things that are equivalent to insurrection. So if you look at Section 251, it says whenever there's an insurrection in any state against its government, the president may, upon the request of the legislature or the governor, call into federal service such as the militia of the other states and use such of the armed forces as he considers necessary to suppress the insurrection. And that ties back to Article 4, Section 4, which talks about the power of the United States uh, to act against domestic violence in a state. Well, you have to give consideration to the fact that the term domestic violence in the Constitution is really looking towards uh, violent acts that are in, against the specific laws of the states or their localities. And that's really something that we have here, but not entirely what we have here. And often people look at that section, Section 251, and say, oh, well, you see, the president can't do anything unless the governor or the legislature of that particular state requests him to do so. Well, that's true under that particular statute. But if you go to Section 252, it says that whenever the president considers that unlawful obstructions, combinations, or assemblages, or rebellion against the authority of the United States make it impractical to enforce the laws of the United States in any state 
by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings, he may call in the federal service, such as the militia of any state, or use the armed forces as he considers necessary. So they were talking about a different set of laws. That would be an insurrection that is directed against the authority of the United States in violation of laws of the United States government as opposed to the state government. It also might be in violation of the laws of the state, but this statute specifically is related to insurrections that are going against the laws of the United States, and it gives the president to call gives the president the authority to call in the militia of the armed forces. But it talks about the impracticality of enforcing these laws in the ordinary course of judicial proceedings. So maybe that doesn't apply completely to every one of these incidents that have gone on Minneapolis, Atlanta, wherever they've, they've occurred. But it certainly could apply to some of them. And then we have Section 253, which I think is the one that people are overlooking and probably is the most important one, because this gives the president the authority to use the militia or the armed forces or both or any other means and any other measures that he considers necessary to suppress in any state insurrection, domestic violence, unlawful combination, or conspiracy if it hinders the execution of the laws of that state and of the United States within that state such that any class or, pe- uh, any class or part of the people of that state is deprived of a right privilege, immunity, or protection named in the Constitution and secured by law, and the constituted authorities of that state are unable, fail, or refuse to protect that right, privilege, or immunity. Well, that's what's going on, or certainly has gone on, in places like Minneapolis. You had rioting, you had looting, you had arson, I think sometimes you even had killing there, that was in violation of the laws of the state of Minnesota probably the local county laws and city laws as well, and laws of the United States. And the officials of the state of Minnesota and county of Hennepin and city of Minneapolis, city of St. Paul, were failing or refusing to exercise their authority in a timely manner to suppress those riots or insurrections, whatever that long list. So that would be a classic situation where the president could step in. He would simply have to determine that that was the the situation, that these things were going on, these unlawful activities were going on, and the officials at the state and local level were failing or refusing or for some reason or other were unable to provide the proper level of protection to some class or group of their citizens. So, can, at, that, can I, at that point, the president would have the discretion to take action. Right. Can I ask a question about here? Uh, okay, Because sure. we've seen uh, President Trump talk about law and order, law and order. He's tweeted that out. Um, he said, you know, if you don't get control of this, we're going to send in the national... He says, we'll get control of it. Um, and by not doing it, is he encouraging? I mean, is he fulfilling his is he fulfilling his job in that, or is he kind of given an ultimatum? I'm going to give you a couple of days to get this under control, uh, and if you don't get it under control, I'm going to do it. And if he doesn't do anything and it continues to escalate, is he really upholding his oath of office there? Well, we're talking here about a question of circumstances and prudence on the part of the president, and perhaps his willingness to give the benefit of the doubt to local officials because. Section 253, the one that I think really applies here, it says that the president shall take such measures as he considers necessary. All right, so they're giving him 
a level of discretion here. He doesn't have to act immediately. He can exercise a certain amount of prudence. He can exercise a certain amount of uh, political wisdom. And in these cases, as I think he has done or tried to do, at least for a while, would be to tell the officials in the states and localities what is obvious, that they are primarily responsible for dealing with these situations and that he expects them to do it. <laughs> the Constitution of the United States. Sure, I agree. States I agree. requires them to do it. And only if he determines that they really have failed or refused or proven their inability, then he would step in. And I think that's fair to put the onus initially on those state and local people. I agree. To clear, to clear up the mess. Now, how far he's going to go with that uh, depends on circumstances. Now, I guess they haven't been burning down buildings in Minneapolis recently, so maybe he can afford to take a little more time there and see if those people will uh, shape up to their responsibilities. On the other hand, if some new outbreak occurs then I should think he wouldn't give a great deal of time to local officials or state officials in that place because he's already warned every official in the country if this thing goes on too far, he's going to intervene. Now, also we have to give consideration to where is he going to obtain the forces to intervene because Section 253 says he may use the militia or the armed forces or both or by any other means. So if we were looking at the District of Columbia, for instance, he could have used the National Guard. He could have used the regular armed forces. He could have called upon whatever federal security officers and agencies there were. Of course, he did. He had the Secret Service around the White House. So he has a number of alternatives. But if we're talking primarily about a state, one would think, well, when, well before you start talking about the armed forces, you should be looking at the first entity or establishment that the statute mentions, and the one that has the constitutional authority to execute the laws of the Union and suppress insurrections. And what is that? Well, that's the militia. All right? In any one of these situations where the president is going to intervene, the direct constitutional route would be to use a statute which gives him authority to employ the militia in his capacity as the militia's commander-in-chief. So if you look at a statute that defines what's called the militia of the United States, and that's kind of a peculiar term of art, that's the militia that Congress might call forth to perform some of these constitutional functions. And it's distinguishable, I think, from the general militia of the several states, because if you look at the militia statutes in the various states, militia being state institutions, they can be called forth by Congress to serve in the employment of the United States, but they're not institutions of the United States government. They're institutions of the state governments. And if you look at the state statutes, typically, the state statutes are broader in terms of whom they include in, in their militia than this concept, militia of the United States. But in any event, the militia of the United States is defined as in having two categories. One is the organized militia, which is the National Guard, and the other is the unorganized militia, which is everyone from 17 to 45 who is able-bodied, who is not a member of the National Guard. That's a pretty broad category. 
So the president theoretically, in, in the first instance, looking at that statute, which is Title X of the United States Code, Section 246, interestingly it's found in this insurrection chapter, he could turn to the militia of any particular state from the so-called unorganized militia category. And in Virginia, for instance, where I am, that would be any able-bodied citizen, male or female, from 16 to 55 years of age. Pretty broad category there. Or the president could call upon the so-called organized militia, and that would be the National Guard from whatever state he wanted to call them forth. Now, can because I ask there's you... No, there's no limitation on, on which ones he can he can use. Right. Let, let me ask you a question just for some clarification. D- I know you've listed these things. You said the classes of the militia are the organized militia, which consists of the National Guard and the Naval Militia. Uh, i show people that in your article here. And then the unorganized militia would consist of the members of the militia who are not members of the National Guard or the Naval Militia. These are the, these are the young men, 17 to, eight, to 45, uh, able-bodied men. And so with that said, um, my question is, is there, is there any kind of foundation here to establish a federal militia, not one in the states, and where would that be found constitutionally? Well, there isn't. I mean, as I said before, the militia are state institutions. They were there as part of the state governmental structure. These weren't private organizations by any stretch of the imagination. They were all statutory organizations and later made constitutional organizations when the state constitutions were written and eventually the federal constitution was written. And they can be called forth for service of the United States, as the statute says, as the Constitution says, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 16, in the employment of the United States. So we're talking about here in the federal, uh, a part of the federal system. You have the militia of the several states, which are state institutions. Under some circumstances, Congress can call them forth to be employed in the service of the United States, but they never become actual entities or institutions within the government of the United States. All right, I can I can come to your home uh, to perform you know kitchen services for you, but I don't become part of your family. I mean that's right. You know, sure, I get that, that way. Right, there's a constitutional break here. Now, once they are called into the actual service of the United States, at that point, the president becomes their commander-in-chief. Only at that point. Okay. So we're looking at a situation where Congress has passed a statute pursuant to its authority to call forth the militia. That statute refers to execution of the laws and suppression of insurrections. And that statute gives the president the authority to use the militia in his capacity, of course, as commander-in-chief, because he couldn't do it otherwise. Then the question becomes, well, which part of the militia is he going to call forth, assuming he's going to call forth any of them? And the difficulty with the so-called unorganized militia is that in every state that I've ever looked, they are primarily unorganized. You really don't have a direct means for the president to call forth specific numbers of people who have been trained and equipped to do certain things, such as riot control or what have you. So, under these circumstances we have today, and that's, that's one of the unfortunate situations I was talking about earlier. We, we need to clear that up, right? That's not the way the Constitution is supposed to operate, just to have this huge group of people sitting out there twiddling their thumbs and doing nothing. That's not a constitutional structure. But that's the way it is now, so that leaves the president with two 
Well, three alternatives as the any other means, but I'll leave that aside because I think outside of the District of Columbia that wouldn't be a realistic thing to consider. He can use the armed forces or the organized militia. Now, we don't want to use the armed forces for two reasons. Number one, as soon as you start using the armed forces, you get into the question of martial law. Because people tend to think that when the armed forces are patrolling the streets, that's what you have. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's certainly a question. And the Declaration of Independence tells us that one of the charges, major charges against King George III, was precisely that he tried to impose martial law on the colonies. So martial law in the true meaning of that term is something that is not only extra-constitutional, but it's outside of the uh, allowances of the Declaration of Independence. So you want to keep the armed away from anything that looks like enforcing the laws as possible. Well, we have this other set of entities in each of the states called... And they are described as militia in this statute. And therefore, they are not, at least in this role, they could not be considered to be part of the regular armed forces. Now, granted, there are provisions in Title 32 of the United States Code which enable the, or require, let's put it that way, the, the National Guard to serve as adjunct of, of the regular armed forces in certain situations. So the National Guard wears two kinds of hats here. But in this particular domestic situation, they would be treated as militia under the exact terms of the statutes that I've read. And the president would be their commander-in-chief, and he could call forth whatever number of them he thought he needed from whatever states he thought he uh, could use. So let's say you had a situation in, in Minneapolis that isn't going on now, but assume that it was the same as it was a, a while back. Uh, the president could call people from the National Guard from Iowa or Wyoming or whatever to go to Minneapolis, St. Paul, and patrol the streets. And my point is simply not that that would be something he would want to do now, not that that would necessarily have been prudent even when the rioting and arson was going on those in Minneapolis. But he has the power to do this. And he has the authority to do this. And if things go far enough, it would be a violation of his constitutional duty not to do it. Now that's where you get into a question here, because the statute says quite clearly that he shall take such measures as he considers necessary. So the statute is giving him discretion. And when the courts were making ser serious consideration of, of these kinds of issues, the Supreme Court made it clear that, well, when a statute gives the president or other executive officer discretion of that kind, then the courts cannot second-guess his exercise of it. Nobody can. He decides when he's going to use that authority and when not. Now, of course, if he went too far in the wrong direction, if he said, I'm going to let the cities burn, I don't care, then he might be subject, probably would be subject, to impeachment. Right? It's a high crime and misdemeanor when you're facing a situation where you have the authority to deal with it and you simply refuse to do it for personal reasons, political reasons, whatever, reasons that are not connected to uh, the proper exercise of the law. So that would be the control mechanism. The control mechanism would be impeachment and then conviction, first in the House and then in the Senate. But the courts could not intervene in it. So he's sitting, in a, President Trump is sitting in an interesting position because he can look at this situation. He has a lot of leeway. 
he can take the step of telling the state and local officials, you had better act, because if you don't, at some point I will intervene. He can intervene to whatever degree he feels is necessary. I mean, I can imagine a situation where he could send some National Guard people down there to the, to the police in Minneapolis and say, well, we're going to take you out and protect you and so forth and so on, but you're going to do the arresting and controlling. We're just going to be your backup. There may be ten more of us for each one of you, but that's the way it's going to work. He could order it that way. Or he could order the National Guard into the streets and let the Minneapolis police force stay in their, in their precincts. Take a lot of steps like that. And I would find it would be fascinating if he called forth the militia. And one of the militias he called forth was the governor of Minnesota. Governor of Minnesota, I presume, is the commander-in-chief of the militia of the, of the state of Minnesota. So he'd be subject to the president's orders, too. And if he didn't come forth specifically in response to the president's order, I guess he could be court-martialed. Yeah, I, I think you you made mention of that uh, concerning when we talked about what was going on in Virginia just a few months ago when we had you on the show, and you were talking about, you know, Trump could have just put the sort of the kibosh on what was going on there with Governor Northam because he would be his subordinate uh, under under that kind of a, of a scenario. So I, I can see that would be kind of interesting to see him do that and to call up uh, Governor Walls uh, to do that for him to be his subordinate. And I, I'm, I'm assuming Governor Walls doesn't like that kind of idea, but it, that mm-hmm. would be very interesting to see that kind of come about. Well, that's uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm setting up a kind of an extreme continuum here from one side, one end of it, where the president says, look, you people at the state and local level really have to do this. Please do it before things get out of hand. And then the other extreme, where he simply takes over the situation, calls out the National Guard, and calls out the militia, perhaps some other people in the state of Minnesota, uh, political figures who are members of the militia, and says, oh, now, you're going to take some orders here, too. I'm not going to listen to this at all. Uh, I think what he's doing now is he's taking a more prudent course uh, of letting these local officials stew in their own juice for a while. Uh, and eventually, if things don't calm down, that's the other question, how, how far are these things going to go? If things don't calm down, I, I would imagine they're going to have to take some action before he does, because the political consequences are going to be too much for them. But it depends. Every time we have one, another one of these incidents, because there was one the other day, right, with the, the fellow who was killed in the DUI stop there in Georgia. Yep. Okay. Uh, so, of course, people are looking very, very closely at every one of these potential incidents that occurs and every one that has uh, a taint of police misconduct is going to feed the fire, of course, that's leading to more demonstrations and then possibly the hijacking of demonstrations by you know, people who have uh, radical political agendas that they're trying to promote. And then that puts uh, more pressure on the president to do something one way or another, uh, simply as an example. Do it in one place and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm sh- shutting the place down, sending the National Guard in. We're going to patrol the streets, etc. clean this up. And I'll, from now on, is this what I'm going to do? See, then the question becomes, well, what now do the, and let me not call them the protesters, because the protesters have a constitutional right to protest peacefully to assemble. But the agitators... What does this then do to the agitators? Are the agitators going to fade back into the woodwork, or are they going to become more bold, more brazen, and try to escalate circumstances? So the president, notwithstanding what powers he has, he has to walk a pretty fine line here, politically. I don't think legally. I mean, you see these people all over the internet say, he doesn't have any authority to do this. 
You even have these generals who say, oh, well, this is you know, a constitutional crisis. He's doing something that's unconstitutional. Well, thank God they're no longer in active duty, these guys, because they know what they're talking about. Now, say this is a very simple, simple uh, analysis. You walk through the statutes in Chapter 13 of Title 10, and it's there in black and white. This is not a matter of interpretation. This isn't a matter of somebody's opinion. Right? We're not reading the hieroglyphics or something where you can come to different viewpoints depending on you know, what your opinion is with respect to this hieroglyphic or that hieroglyphic. There is no debate about this. There can be no debate about this. This is 2 plus 2 equals 4, and it's right there on the face of the statute book. So we're seeing that this is the other problem here. We're seeing a lot of people out there who are making statements, voicing opinions, for the purpose of what? Towering the president? Uh, just trying to discourage him from taking this action? Trying to stir up more uh, violent activism in the streets on the basis that, yeah, you don't... You, you, uh, you looters and rioters don't have to worry about this. Trump's not, not going to do this. Trump's not going to send the National Guard. He doesn't have the authority. You saw this in D.C. I thought this was amazing in, in the District of Columbia. District of Columbia is a federal city. Right? It has no real autonomy of its own. It doesn't fall under the Tenth Amendment, for instance, of the Constitution. It comes under Article One, Section 8, Clause right. 17, which gives exclusive legislative authority to Congress all right. To Congress, not to the people that Congress may by statute put in municipal control of that area. So D.C. has had different kinds of governments over the years. Now they have a mayor and council form of government. All right, well, that gives the mayor, Muriel Bowser, I guess is her name, only such authority as Congress has given her. She can't fall back on some kind of innate constitutional authority in the way a state can under the Tenth Amendment. That doesn't exist for the District of Columbia. So it is amazing to see her carrying on as if she were the governor of some independent state. But that's the attitude. Trump has no real authority. Trump is acting unconstitutionally. Muriel Bowser is the one who controls the District of Columbia, not the federal government. It's amazing to me to see this. And, of course, it's pressed, you know, pushed on people, pressed forward by the, by the big mainstream media. And the average person, well, the average person is not going to read Title 10 of the United States Code. The average, the average pundit, that's what amazes me. The average pundit who talks about the Insurrection Act, let him go and find the Insurrection Act in Title 10 of the United States Code. It isn't there. No, I said agree. Before, there are a series of statutes that fall in and deal with insurrection, deal with the militia and so forth, that are all bunched there because they deal roughly with the same subject. But this title, insurrection, is just a title that was put in by the codifiers. All right? There's not a single act, a single statute that does it. You look at these statutes in, in Title 10, they were all passed at different times. I mean, the one I'm talking about was passed in 1871, Title, uh, title 10, Section 253. And that's the one that deals with the failure of the state officials to protect their citizens against these acts of violence, insurrection conspiracy, and so forth. Now, why was that statute passed? This is why I think a lot of people have missed the boat on this, because they haven't done a little bit of history, historical uh, research. 
the, this, the predecessor of this statute was passed specifically pursuant to the 14th Amendment in 1871. And the reason was that in 1871, civil war was over. Governments had been reestablished, civil governments had been reestablished in the former Confederate states. And in many of those states, public officials, especially at the local levels, were taking illegal action, either directly or indirectly, to deny the freedmen, the former slaves, their civil rights. And in fact, some of these local officials were looking the other way when the Ku Klux Klan or the Night Riders, as they were called, were out terrorizing the freedmen. Or the local officials might put, be, you know, have put on Klan robes themselves and gone out and engaged that, in that kind of misbehavior. So Congress passed this statute to look at that situation where the state and local officials were refusing in that particular case, or in some cases where they were simply unable because the Klan was too strong, they were unable to or refusing to protect, or they failed somehow to protect the rights of some class of people within their jurisdiction. In that particular case, it was black people. Well, here we have, what's the class? Well, it's residents and businessmen in those districts which are subject to looting and arson and pillaging and so forth and so on. So there's a class of people, and they're deprived of their civil rights, right to property, right to be free from arson, right, from sedition, from insurrection. You can list a whole thing that are illegal that are being done to them. Uh, some of them have been killed, physically assaulted or, or killed. Right? So it's life, life, liberty, and property, as Section 1 of the 14th Amendment says, and they're being denied equal protection of the law because the state and local officials are looking the other way or refusing to take action or are simply unable to take action because the mob is too, is too powerful. So this statute fits the exact circumstances of today, just as it fit the exact circumstances in 1871, except the people who are doing the pillaging, the night riders, because usually the looting occurs at night, the night riders are different. The Knight Riders are now are Antifa and some other radical groups, whereas the Knight Riders in 1871 were the Klan and their allies. But the principle is the same. So I don't understand, number one, why people don't see this, don't look this up, especially these pundits in the major media. And then number two, why... Someone in the Trump administration has not stood up and said, you know, we have a situation that's exactly similar, exactly parallel. The statute that was written for the protection of black people way back when, in the early days of Reconstruction. And we have the same situation going on now. Instead of the Klan doing these infamous acts, it's these neo-Bolsheviks. It's these anarchists. What's the difference? Well, the difference is, from a legal point of view, not at all. There's no difference. You have a different group of perpetrators, and you have a different group of victims, and you have the same circumstances that the state officials, for whatever political reasons, right? What were the political reasons in 1871? The local officials were favorable to what the Klan was doing. What are the circumstances today the local officials apparently are favorable to what the antifa people are doing for whatever reason is there any difference 
Yeah, no, I, I don't see that there's any difference at all. And in fact, this is this is some of the this is the the strange thing about you know what we're facing. And, and just you know, in all fairness, uh, people say, "Oh, Tim, you think you're right about?" It. No, I've been corrected by Dr. Vera in this paper uh, over a couple of things, and I made mention to, the, to you about that the other night when we talked on the phone to bring you on today. And um, and so I'm I'm thankful for that and in, in the understanding of those things. But it is amazing to me that we have. <clears throat> and I think this is part of the problem that we have in the country is when we when we put people in office, whether it's a president or a, a representative or a senator or something like that, these people are a governor or whoever, they don't seem to know the Constitution themselves, and yet they're going to put their hand on the Bible, swear before God and man, they're going to uphold that. And it seems like the problem is is not really the media, and it's not really... The politicians, it's the people's fault for putting such ignorant people in office uh, when we really get down to it. it. I mean, is that would that be your view as well? Ultimately, the sovereign under our system of government, as the Declaration of Independence makes clear, is, let me say are, the people, that's a plural, are the people themselves. Right? They're the ones who delegate just powers to their form of government, form of government they create. And they are supposed to maintain sufficient oversight to be sure that that form of government performs its functions within the limits of the just powers that have been delegated. And if it doesn't, or should I say, if the officials within the government, because it's never the government that does this. Government is a legal fiction. It's a bunch of buildings and offices. But it acts through people, particular individuals. So under our system of government, you can never say the government has violated someone's rights because the government has no authority to violate anyone's rights. Quite the contrary. Government is always supposed to uphold and protect people's rights. It's some rogue public official who has taken some action, the effect of which is to deny someone's rights. And then you go after him. It's not the government that's at fault. He's at fault. Now, if we were to discover that this form of government that we have set up simply doesn't work, there's no way that you can make this work because of the nature of human beings, then the people would have to come back and reform it, as the Declaration of Independence says. I don't think that's the case. I think our problem is that at various levels we don't have sufficient oversight, supervision, review, uh, you, you think about what goes on in Washington and how much they try to keep secret from us, these rogue public officials. Well, you can't have a Republican form of government in which public officials are keeping from the actual sovereigns the necessary information so that the sovereigns can govern, oversee, and control their own governmental institutions. That's ridiculous. Right? Qualified immunity, a lot of these people who are protesting are complaining about the qualified immunity that police officers have. And that's another point of contention. How can you have qualified immunity, at least to the extent that it's given now, under a constitutional structure in which each officer swears to support the Constitution? Oh, he's going to support the Constitution, but when he doesn't support the Constitution, he's going to be given immunity? Well, then what, his, what good is his oath? See, there's no, a contradiction I, I there. I totally agree. There's a contradiction there, okay? And, and this immunity concept is not something that's built into the Constitution. It was invented by the Supreme Court. It was invented by the Supreme Court 
1960s, I think. Completely an invention. Yeah, let me... Under the, me, Civil, Rights Act, under the Civil Rights Acts that were passed immediately after the Civil War. Okay, let me, let me interject okay. something here, and I want to I get your opinion on that since you're bringing that up. We had the president uh, just a couple of days ago sign an executive order titled Safe Policing for Safe Communities. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff and what we're seeing with the writing goes back to something in 2015 that came out from the United Nations called the, I think it was called the Smart Cities Network or something like that, or Safe right, Security, yeah, whatever right. it is. And I see that working hand in glove with, what the, with what's going on here. Now, this orders the creation, this executive order, orders the creation of a federal database to track police officers with multiple cases of misconduct. It also allocates federal funds for a national credentialing system to incentivize police forces to meet higher certification standards on the use of force. Now, I have, I have a question for you. We're, we're clear that uh, the president can control the military. He can control the, the militia. Um, I, I'm not seeing anything where he's controlling local police forces. I, I'm, that's something I'm a, I'm a little off on here as to how this and how they should be incentivizing these police forces with money. It's kind of like the incentivi- incentivizing to me where the DOJ goes in and says, well, we're going to uh, give money to states if you uh, put in red flag laws. And we've had that conversation, too. All right. Sure, it, it's sure. it's. These the strings that come with the militarization of local police, like uh, the federal government giving them MRAPs or the Bearcats or any of this equipment and stuff, and they go, oh, well, you know, we're saving the, the states a lot of money by them giving it. Yeah, but there's always strings attached to it, and that's something that really concerns me. And then we have even Senate Republicans. This comes out of something came out from the Tenth Amendment Center. Uh, Senate Republicans are drafting a police reform package of their own. Provisions reportedly include a ban on certain chokehold and expanded use of police body cameras. There are also calls to end or limit qualified immunity, what you were talking about a minute ago, which I think is is just if a police officer is acting outside of his oath, he's a held accountable, not the people through uh, through their tax paying, uh, through the uh, through the police department being sued, but the individual officers. A legal doctrine invented by federal courts, which you said before, that legally shields police. It's legally, not lawfully. That's what I say from being held accountable for misconduct. So when we see these kinds of things, does the president have this authority? What is he doing writing this executive order to do this this kind of thing? Okay, let's look at that a number of levels. First, just to make sure that it's clear, qualified immunity is not something that applies to police only. The courts have expanded that concept to apply to any public official or sometimes a private party that's acting like a consultant or, or whatever that's acting with or in concert with a public official. So they made it very broad, but it, it comes up in these police cases because there are more of these situations that bubble up to the surface. Now, the question of what authority there is, well, you're absolutely correct that police departments, police forces are quintessentially state and local institutions. They are not institutions created by the Constitution itself. They are not institutions that are within the powers of Congress to create unless, or to control, or unless, and this is the unless, unless those units were part of the militia. So you can imagine a situation where the militia of the, of the state had within it units that performed what we call police functions today. Congress has the power to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia and providing training for the militia. 
for the purpose of executing the laws of the Union, suppressing insurrections, repelling invasions. So you can imagine in those situations that Congress could pass some kind of organizational or training uh, structure and say, well, you state people, you have to train your, quote-unquote, police units so that if we call them forth to execute the laws of the Union, they would all be acting in a uniform way. They'd all be trained the same way, organized the same way, equipped the same way, sure. whatever. All right? Sure. Okay, that's no, so th- that's clear enough. But we don't have that now. We have police that are separate and independent of the government in Washington, D.C. They are state institutions, usually local institutions. Right? You have the state police, you have the county police, you have the city police, town police, whatever. Many different layers, and they're subject to different jurisdictions. So the question you asked is a very important one. How is it? that the President of the United States can issue an executive order with respect to these matters of local police. And then you get into the question of what executive order. The President can't uh, promulgate an executive order other than something like housekeeping within the White House or whatever, unless there's a statutory authority given to him by Congress. So Congress, under the circumstances that exist today, doesn't really have any statutory authority that's created for the police over local police departments. It wouldn't have that constitutional authority to do so. So we get into this trick that was created by the Supreme Court. Once again, we get back to the courts. They are the real bad actors here in many instances. Supreme Court said, well, Congress can condition the receipt of federal funds on compliance by state and local officials with regulations, uh, guidelines, whatever you want to call them, which Congress could not enact directly. Congress might not have the, the authority to act, enact these regulations or guidelines directly, to impose this directly, but it could make them a condition of receipt of public money. In other words, Congress could bribe the states to allow Congress to exercise unconstitutional authority. You see how stupid that is? Oh, it is. But that's a decision of the Supreme Court. And that's how most of these funding games are played. They pass some statute that says, we'll give you money for whatever it may be. Something that the states can do, say, police departments. We'll give you money for your police departments on the condition that you comply with these various regulations, guidelines, protocols, whatever they're going to call them parenthesis, which, by the way, we are not entitled under the Constitution to enforce against you directly, close parenthesis. And the state officials, instead of thumbing their nose at Congress, and saying, we don't want your bloody money, they take the money. And then they impose the conditions. Yep. And pretty soon people get the idea that, oh, yeah, of course the president has the authority to do this. He's been doing it for the past 20 years, writing executive orders that have some kind of effect like this, all tied back to a funding scheme. So I read that one that he put out the other day. And what he's doing is he's going to primarily to the Attorney General and say, Mr. Barr, you know, you figure out how we're going to uh, define these requirements, how we're going to impose these requirements, and you tie them to a funding scheme. So the states will take them as part of this bribery operation. Now, one thing, though, is that he, he had... Uh, the database of police misconduct. 
And there, one might say, well, you have a number of civil rights statutes. And let me take the two very prominent ones. Title 18 of the United States Code, sections 241 and 242, again passed during the Reconstruction period right after the Civil War. And those deal with criminal violations of constitutional or civil rights under color of law. Well, that's the classic statement of the police misconduct, right? The police are always acting under color of law. Well, I shouldn't say always, because sometimes they pretend to be acting as police, but they're really not. But typically, they're acting under color of law as police officers. And they do something which violates the constitutional rights of a party, or perhaps some civil right that Congress has created pursuant to a statute. And if they do that, there are criminal penalties for it. Those statutes are not subject to qualified immunity. The only statutes that are subject to qualified immunity in the area in which we're discussing are the civil statutes, Title 42 of the United States Code, Section 1983, is a classic one. That's violation of civil rights by someone under color of law. You bring a civil suit against him for an injunction, a declaratory judgment, usually for damages you want money because you've been hurt in some way. That's where the Supreme Court injected this qualified immunity concept so that these public officials would not be threatened with monetary penalties which, of course, is the best deterrent going you know, against misuse of authority. You're going to be hit with a personal financial penalty. The criminal acts, and of course, it's a higher level of proof there. You have to prove an intent to violate someone's civil rights or constitutional rights. The criminal acts are not subject to qualified immunity. You perform one of those, that's not a defense. The only defense is I didn't do it. I agree. Basically, okay? Yep. Uh, but we have those now. So you could imagine... A part of the Department of Justice that was responsible for dealing with these potential criminal cases. Yeah, we got about a minute. To want to have a database of the potential perpetrators, right? They're picking up information. So when when Officer X commits some act, and the local people say, "We think this is a violation of Title 18, United States Code Section 242." The guys in the DOJ or the people in the U.S. Attorney's Office in that locality probably, they go into their computer, they go to their database, and they see, oh, Officer X had 18 complaints against him over the last six years. We probably have an example here of someone who needs to be prosecuted because it looks like he's done a lot of intentional things that have slipped through the, you know, gone on, gone on unprosecuted. We've got you know good case against this guy, yeah. potentially. Dr. So we really someone Dr. we should look at. So I can, I can see that as right. a possibility. But hang, most of what else is in... Let's hang on just a second. I'm going to end the closing music for the radio audience, and then we'll pick it up okay. on the other side on the video portion. Guys, if you want to uh, catch us, go to YouTube, uh, Setting Brush Fires, or go to our Facebook page, Bradley Dean SOL, or B. Dean SOL, excuse me, Sons of Liberty. Check us out there. We'll pick up the other side right after this. Okay. All right. We're back. I didn't want to cut you off in the middle of what you were saying oh, no, because there's right. something else that's I want right. to do. So you want to continue your thought on that? Yeah. My, my thought was that in that situation where they're talking about a database where the information could probably would have a connection to prosecutions or at least investigations that would fall within the purview of the Department of Justice in dealing with criminal enforcement of civil rights. You can say, well, that kind of collection of data is probably within their authority. 
You can imagine the FBI doing that. You can imagine some other agencies potentially doing that because they would have jurisdiction over cases of that kind and individuals committing acts of that kind. Right? So we're not really talking about this constitutional uh, abyss between power on the one hand and then what the president is putting into these executive orders on the other hand. That's a, when I say abyss, I mean, it's a long jump from one to the other. And looking at the thing that he put out the other day, I think there are quite a few provisions in there that are highly, highly questionable. Under the real constitutional analysis, they're not questionable at all under this idea that they can attach any conditions they want to federal spending. Right. I think your average uh, law professor and so forth is going to tell you, oh, this is perfectly fine because they've been doing this in <laughs> essentially every field you can imagine, You know, ad- adding, the, adding bribery to an executive order or a statute or what have you. Now, someone may find, if he digs into this deeply enough, he may find that there's some provision of a statute someplace that limits the president's authority to control, withhold, really, or condition spending of certain kinds. And I haven't looked into all those potential details, but you can imagine the people that are against anything that President Trump does, they're, they're pouring like a fly on flypaper. They're moving really slowly over all the statutes that talk about funding of this kind for police activities to see if they can find some, something to tar him with. I would tar him with the general principle, even if, there's a, even if there are statutes that are written that purport to give this kind of uh, authority to attach regula- regulations Absolutely. and guidelines to funding. Ah, that, no, that's, that's, that's no good. That's an invention by the Supreme Court. That's no good at all. But I understand why he's doing it. Right? We've always got to come back to this fact that he and his advisors are not going to be sitting down being as scrupulous as possible with constitutional niceties. For two reasons. Number one, they don't know about them. Three reasons. Number one, they don't know about them. Number two, they probably don't have the time to get into it. And number three, politically speaking, they probably don't want to know. This is typical of the way politicians operate. And in this particular case, what he's doing in this executive order is probably favored by a very large percentage of the population on both sides of you know this Black Lives Matter divide that has been created. Right? There are plenty of people on, on each side that are willing to say, oh yes, we don't, we don't want to tolerate anymore police uh, brutality, uh, police acting outside of their authority, however you want to describe it. And you can find that on the so-called conservative side, constitutions, because constitutions are against that in principle. Right? All public oh, sure. officials should sure. be required. And then on the other hand, the people who are, whether white or black or some other race, who are the victims of this, want as much as possible to stamp it out. So it's, I think it would be pretty hard, except, on, except some of the extremists in the police unions, uh, to be against it in principle. I look at it, I'm not against it in principle, I'm against it in particulars. He's not doing this the right way. No, that's, and I think that's, I think that's where we go to. We don't elect people to be political, we, up, we elect them to uphold the law. That's what they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to be worried about whether they get their, their job back the next tenure or whatever, uh, next time they're up for election. That's not the issue. We're, we're, we're electing them to uphold the law. And, uh, and that is the most important thing, and, and sadly... This is what I see, not only just you know from the top, but you see it down at the bottom. Oftentimes, they're they're willing to be politically expedient, and the mob is willing to go along 
um, and to give up liberty or to give more power in a place it doesn't belong uh, than to actually go about it the right way and do the other things. You know, you talked about the Black Lives Matter. I did um, a radio show a couple of weeks ago. There was a white gentleman down in Texas. White officers put him on his stomach, just like the other guy. The guy was on his back, right in his chest, where his you know chest area would be pressed into the ground. And the young man was saying, you're going to kill me. Um, you know, he wanted to sit up. They already had him handcuffed. He didn't commit a crime or anything. And mm-hmm. they sat on him for 13 minutes. It's almost twi- not twice as much. It's mo- far more than what they had the, the Floyd guy up in Minneapolis on. And they killed him. And then once they had killed him, he wasn't moving and everything. They gave him a, they added a sedative to him too. They shot him with a sedative. All this was on camera. It took the family three years to get the body cam. And you don't see all of the hoopla and everything over this guy. And again, this comes back to, it isn't about skin color. It's about the fact that you're, you're the, I don't know if this, the training, I don't know if it's part of man's sinful nature in some of the police force that do this because I know there are cops I've run across that I've never had a problem with like that. They were very polite. They were very kind, um, especially out here in rural South Carolina. This is not a problem. Uh, I think I've had in my entire life of 51 years, I've run into like two cops that were, you know, just uh, somewhat abusive. And but I've never seen this kind of thing. We're seeing it on a daily basis where this comes out. And I believe uh, and I think I'm hearing what you're saying. The best way to curb this is to deal with it locally. Um, This is where that power resides. And if you got bad cops, you need to start prosecuting bad cops. And if you if you got good cops, then praise those cops. But the fact of the matter is, until if you leave those bad cops in there, you know Jesus said, "A little leaven, a little leaven, leaven leavens the whole lump." If you leave the the couple of bad apples in there, what happens when you put bad apples with good apples? Well, eventually they start to make them spoil too. So we we don't want that. We need to take care of this kind of stuff at the local level. Sure, and it's it, it's not simply the police. And I talk about police unions. That's a very dangerous uh, structure really un- unconstitutional structure, but they've allowed it to happen. Uh, but what do they do? They engage in collective bargaining with the police department heads, and they also engage in political action, so they may be the ones who elect the people who choose the chief of police, or maybe choose the sheriff or what have you. And then they end up bargaining on both sides of the bargaining table, and they build in grievance procedures and arbitration and so forth, and internal affairs, uh, investigations, and all the rest of this stuff for the purpose of doing what? For the purpose of, quote-unquote, protecting the members of the union, the police officers. right? The, in, in essence, the public be damned. Right? Because in our adversarial legal system, the lawyer represents his client. He doesn't care whether the client is actually guilty or not guilty. Uh, he's trying to get the client off, period. And he does whatever he can do, whatever he can get away with, within the parameters of legal ethics, which are pretty broad, to achieve that result. And so I look at police unions in that sense. They are not there to serve the public interest. They are there to serve this very narrow interest of their members, sometimes against the public interest. And then, of course, the prosecutors are part of this, too, because the prosecutor decides whether he's going to take a case to the grand jury if he has to, sometimes misdemeanors don't have to be don't have to go that far, and of course he likes a situation where he can depend upon the police to make cases for him. 
And as a result of that, he doesn't want to be on the outs with the police or the police union. So you have a, this kind of symbiotic, relation, incestuous relationship is a better way to put it, at those different levels within the system. And, of course, they have been developing through training a kind of adversarial relationship between the police and the average citizen. That's this thin blue line concept. Right? There's us and then there's them. There's the police, good guys, and then there's this vast mass out here, the civilians, in which there are a lot of bad guys. And we need to use uh, paramilitary uh, tactics and so forth and be armed to the teeth and have SWAT teams with heaven, almost you know, armored vehicles or what have you uh, to deal with this situation. Shoot first, ask questions later. I mean, you go through that whole litany of problems. Uh, John Whitehead from the Rutherford Institute is constantly coming out with examples yep. of this kind of behavior, misbehavior, I would say. Now, that could all be solved if we went back to the correct constitutional structure, which I talked about earlier. The police, that function is the execution of the laws. All right? Basically, that's what police do. They're going around their executive branch, within the executive branch of government, they're going around executing the laws on people, picking them up for violation of laws, and then handing them over to the prosecutors and the courts. And that is the quintessential function of the militia. The militia are there to execute the laws primarily and then to do these other things secondarily because we don't have that many insurrections, we don't have that many invasions and what have you. This is, this so, is what I was going to ask you. Would the answer to be, would the answer for the people who are, you know, uh, who may be like me, who are rethinking the whole concept of law enforcement and things of this nature, and I'm not talking about as a, as a police force, but I'm talking about those who enforce the law, uh, would the proper thing be, and it's going to be a slow process, obviously, to get back there, but would the proper thing not be for the people to begin uh, doing that themselves through the regulated militia in the in the several states? I mean, that seems like where you're going. That's what I've been thinking anyway. Well, that's what I've been going for a long time. Now, I don't know how, how long a process it would take because once you restructure, once you take the unorganized militia in these various sections, well, now we're going to organize it. You already have these police units there. Those units simply become subsets of the militia. Now, the advantage of having the militia involved in it is that the militia are the ones who are going to be supervising, ultimately controlling, conducting surveillance, if you will, over every unit within the totality of the militia. Right. You're not going to have a unit which thinks of itself as being independent of the people because the militia is concerned. Well, take Virginia, every able-bodied male and female from 16 to 55 years of age. It's the entire adult population, basically. And that kind of a structure would have necessarily a number of checks and balances built into it so that no subunit of it that had particular authority, whether it was the police, whether it was the 9-11 responders, whether it was the firefighters. You can think of whole sorts, all sorts of groups that would be part of a generalized militia structure. They would all be subject to some kind of supervision and control. So if you had someone in your local militia that was acting out, it would take very little time for some supervisory body within the militia to get control of that guy and create a situation in which his problem would be solved one way or the other. And that would include people like the prosecutors. You can have all sorts of people that get away with murder, literally and figuratively, in this country, where that would stop 
if they were subject to militia control. Why? Because the militia are the local people. They're not going to tolerate that kind of behavior in their own localities. And most of these police would, in fact, be, are now, surely. They either live in the community or they live across the line not too far away. They're not coming from out of state every day to perform their functions. So they would be, number one, sympathetic to the members of their own community. And on the other hand, wary of making enemies of the members of their own community through the militia because the members of their own community through the militia would know what they were doing. I totally agree. I totally I mean, I'm glad you said that because what's going on now, I mean, many of the police are making themselves the enemy. I mean, they're they're going to be targeted by criminals instead of uh, held in check by those who want to uphold the law in their community. And and I think many people want to get behind the police in uh, upholding the law, the real laws, not the, the color of law stuff that you were talking about before. They want to help them do that. And if they see that they're working together, they're actually working together, um, and they exhibit this, then I think there there is a thing where you eliminate that thin blue line. You have the law, those who uphold the law, those who are breaking the law, and then you have the people who are authorized to actually deal with those who are breaking the law. And I know a lot of people feel frustration. They're like, why isn't something being done with this? They, they see the politics of police chiefs who are not elected by the people. They don't give an account to the people. They give an account to a city council or a county council or something like this. But they don't give an account to the people. I think this is the answer that we need to begin to move in that direction towards, you know, where the people take that responsibility again for their own governance in their own communities. Well, that's why it's in the Constitution. If you look at the history of the, that period immediately before and during the Constitution, creation of the Constitution, you think of the War of Independence. And you realize people like George Washington, they didn't think too much of the militia, right? The militia were called out for a short period of time. They fought for a while. They weren't that well-trained. It was difficult to keep discipline and so forth and so on because they weren't, in a sense, professional soldiers. But they had been part and parcel of the colonial and state governmental structure from the very beginning, from the time of the charters of the colonies when the first people came over here as representatives of the king or queen. So the question then became, at least in my mind, you look at this and say, well, why did they include them? Why in the Constitution are the militia of the several states included as part of this total federal structure? Why is Congress given this specific authority with respect to the militia? Why is the president made the commander-in-chief if these things aren't important in the sense that George Washington might have thought they weren't important as, as frontline soldiers? Because they had this other responsibility. The militia were composed of, or are composed of, the great body of the people who are, in fact, the sovereigns. And in the ultimate analysis, the sovereigns are the ones who control force in any society. If you don't control force in that society, if you're not part of the group that actually controls force in society, you're not part of the sovereignty. Right. You're subject to the sovereignty, but you're not part of it. You're not the sovereign. And so that's why it was put in. Because it goes back to the concept of the Declaration of Independence. The people create the government. The people can alter or abolish the government or change it at will. And who are these people? Well, they're the vast majority of the actual individuals living within that community. 
And ultimately, how do they enforce their decisions? Through force, ultimately. Right? Now, you look at today, you say, my view of it is, I think most people believe in law and order and are willing to submit to law and order, just laws and order. All right? They're not willing to submit to oppression, repression, suppression, whatever you want to call it. Right? Brutality, illegality, fraud by rogue public officials, whether those officials have uniforms or not. But they are not in a position to control these rogue officials, primarily because that great body within the constitutional structure called the militia has been essentially relegated to, oh, I don't know, a moribund status. Most people are members of the so-called unorganized militia. Well, they're not organized. They're not trained. They may be armed. A lot of people may be armed. They may have trained themselves in one way or another, a certain amount of discipline. But that's a relatively small percentage of the total population. They certainly, the average person certainly does not think of himself as a law enforcement agent, that he's someone in the ultimate analysis who is supposed to execute the laws. He doesn't read the Constitution. If you read the Constitution, right. he would see that that's his first duty, execute the laws, yep. right? But yep. he's not doing that. He doesn't see himself as having governmental authority. Oh, he may be a voter, and he may be able to petition, lobby or something, maybe go to court, you know, file a court case. But in, the, in all those capacities, he doesn't see himself as acting as part of the governmental structure, as part of the sovereignty. And, and why is that? Because they have taken away the rogue officials or the idiot officials, whichever interpretation you want to put to them. They have taken away this structure in which people operate directly with governmental authority. And so they look at the, the civilians in this picture, look at the police as being a kind of alien entity. Right? The people are subject to the police. The police are not part of the community. They're above it in some sense. And the police now, these days especially, look at the average citizens the same way. We're separate from them. We're superior to them. We're adversarial with respect to them. We may be even antagonistic towards them. That's the attitude not of police in the, in, in the sense that I would use that word, functioning to execute the laws in a just fashion. That's the attitude of an occupying army. I agree. Okay, I totally, that's I totally the agree. attitude when, you know, when I suppose the American army goes into Afghanistan and some of the Marines go into Afghanistan. That's the attitude between our people and their people. We're here, we're occupying this country, we, we're suspicious of you, and so forth and so on, and we're not on the same plane, politically or legally or whatever. There's this gulf between us, this antagonism between us. And we're here with the guns, we have the authority, and we're going to tell you what to do. And that's the attitude. And that's where this paramilitarization comes in. It's, it's, it's absolutely logical for paramilitarization this playing soldier that they like to do, especially the SWAT units with MRAPs and this other cast-off army equipment, that follows directly from the adversarial attitude that they have been developing over the years. It's exactly, now you're a standing army and you have to have the equipment yep. and the training and, and the uh, tactics 
of a standing army relative to the people that you have been put over. And that's what we see. And until you break that down by having the police and the people within the same organizational structure, and the police, the individuals in the police units and the militia recognizing, I'm no better than this fellow in the police, in, in this other unit of the militia that does something else. Right? We're all in this, as it were, together as a matter of organizational structure. I may have some different authority from that fellow. I may perform a different uh, duty than he does. But I'm going to be subject to the same kind of supervision and control. I am not separate, independent. I cannot afford to be adversarial and antagonistic. That's now, our problem. I No, I agree. We're going to close out the show here. Would, would you say that one thing that the people need to do? Now, you and I talked, uh, I think it was just uh, it was just after Lobby Day, and we talked about the people uh, that were using, there was one county um, where they were using the term militia, but they weren't really following a constitutional militia concept. And I know you were trying to help some of those guys with that uh, to get in a, a constitutional kind of frame of mind. You You really appreciated what they were doing. Uh, it was just kind of tweaking some things here and there. Would you say that across the country, in this, in the, um, in the separate states, that people need to be really petitioning their state legislatures and their governors to say, "Look, we're supposed to have militia. You guys are supposed to organize it and and make sure that all this stuff's in place. We we want officers in in place, and we want it to be where we can be a well-regulated militia, like the Constitution says, in order to begin a transition to take back our communities from the quote unquote, as you put it, the standing army. We want to govern ourselves. We don't want this heavy hand of government to be upon us. Would you say that's a proper thing that people ought to be beginning to push for uh, in their in their separate states? Uh, yes. The only qualification I would put on that is I think they have to start with their local governments first. I don't think you can go up to your state legislature and propose this because, number one, the political climate isn't ready for it. And I don't think that the people that at that level have ever thought this thing through, and they will immediately see it as some sort of an attempt to whittle down their authority. You know the way they are. that It's all turf fights in, in politics. The local people are the ones who see the bad effects of the system we have now. And in many instances feel they can't do anything about it. And you need to convince those local officialdom that there are things they can do about it, and then if enough of them get together on the same page of reform, they can push that at the, at the state level, state legislative level. And maybe in some instances it would be local towns or whatever could, pu- could push it at the county level, and from the county level up to the state, depends upon what your levels of jurisdiction are in a particular state. But I think that level of, of education and organization has to come first. And that's what happened in Virginia with the Second Amendment Sanctuary Movement. They didn't run to Richmond and the state legislature and the governor right away and petition them directly not to enact the laws that they were threatening to enact. The people went to their local level, county governments, town governments, city governments, and like 90-something percent of all of them eventually signed on to one or another type of Second Amendment sanctuary resolution. And then that impetus was, of course, communicated very, very directly to the people in the state government in Richmond. And it caused them 
to back off from quite a bit of the radical legislation that they thought that they were going to be able to pass. And it's only when those people at the upper level realize, wait a minute, we have to deal with this huge mass below us, when the concept of petitioning government is not just one person coming, but it's a huge number of people organized at the local level so that they can be acting through their local governments to do things within their local jurisdiction, that you're going to see change begin at the state level. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. And as they've always said, all politics are local. And, uh, of course, we've gotten our eyes off of that in a lot of ways. We, we look to wash the people's mindset is to look to Washington to solve everything. And they were never designed for that, nor were they authorized to do it. So I appreciate your time, Dr. Vera. Uh, one of the things we want to do is we want to have you back on in the future when you got something out. I'm going to have your article up. Uh, it's already up, actually, at uh, sonsoflibertymedia.com. People can check that out. We'll have that in the archives, as well as um, the issue on Trump's executive order from the Tenth Amendment Center. That's on there as well. I want to encourage people, you know, read your Bible. I think the militia is developed out of that. A standing army was not there, uh, but it was a development of the of the people. And I think that was really the foundations for where a lot of this structure in America came from was from the scriptures. That's what our, our forefathers brought with us. But I'm going to close out the show. Thank you, Dr. Virio, for your time. And uh, guys, we'll see you in 23 hours. Take care.